Amen. The Israelites were at Mount Sinai for 11 months. That is 59 Bible chapters from Exodus 19 forward when they first arrived there. That's a long time Bible chapter wise. 59 chapters starting in Exodus 19 to the end of that book. All of Leviticus and then in the first 10 chapters of Numbers. But it is good for us to recognize how little time passed across 59 Bible chapters. 11 months is not long considering how many spans of time unfold, sometimes within a single chapter of the Word of God. You get to the early sections of Genesis and you have centuries unfolding from one birth to the next, from one person's progeny to the next. 11 months, 59 chapters. This should say to us, given that amount of text and chapter devoted to the Sinai experience, this is a crucial part of their life, foundational for their identity as a people, and the experiences there would forever shape them. What are they leaving behind as they prepare to go? Let's reflect for a moment. Uh, Starting in the book of Exodus, we remember that they received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. This crucial place was where the voice of God had proclaimed, you shall not and you shall not. They received, in addition to those Ten Commandments, a series of civil laws, ceremonial regulations. They formed a covenant known as the Mosaic or Israelite Covenant in Exodus 24 between the nation and Yahweh. They also, at that mountain, rebelled against the Lord. They built a golden calf there. That also happened in Exodus. Near the end of Exodus, they built a tabernacle, a dwelling place where the Lord's manifest glory and presence would accompany them as they traveled. And this tabernacle was filled with glory and cloud at the end of that book. In Leviticus, they established a priesthood at Mount Sinai, Aaron. He would be the high priest and his four sons, the priests. Two of those sons were struck dead at Mount Sinai. In Leviticus chapter 10, when Aaron leaves, he leaves the bodies of his two sons at this mountain where they had spent these months. At this very place, they have taken a census of warriors who would be aged 20 and above, Numbers chapter 1 tells us. They have dedicated a bronze altar in a 12-day spectacle of elaborate offerings and pomp and circumstance, according to Numbers 7. They have offered sacrifices and offerings animals and grain. They have given prayers and proclaimed them over the people, like the prayer in number 6, 24 through 26, of God's shining face on the people. They celebrated the second Passover there in Numbers chapter 9. And then most recently we saw they built two silver trumpets at Sinai. They are now going to leave After in a short amount of time, having experienced so much as a people, the learning curve was steep because the amount of information they've received, the regulations to abide by, and the temptations and snares in front of them will mean that they must be a people whose eyes upon the command and cloud of the Lord. Let's see their departure in verses 11 through 13 as it is recounted to us. In verses 11 to 13, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. They're they're projecting the year here from the Exodus. 
That means in the second year from the Exodus, an entire year has passed. That's why they've already marked a second Passover. So in their second year, but not the first month of the second year, now it's the second month, second year, and on the 20th day, what do we see in verse 11? The cloud lifts from over the tabernacle of the testimony. If the cloud was the signal of the people to follow, here we have, for the first time, a people now preparing to move. Um, I also think it's reasonable that with the cloud's movement and the preparation of the people to disembark, um, we should should imagine the the blast of silver trumpets in the air, uh, because that would also have accompanied, according to Numbers 10, their departure. This tabernacle is called the Tabernacle of the Testimony. And uh, just a few things on the slides to, to show tonight that we've not seen visually for a while. A reminder that this rectangular structure called the tabernacle was containing in its innermost place, hmm, in its innermost place, the Ark of the Covenant where Ten Commandments are going to be located. And the Ten Commandments are the testimony of Israel. Calling this the tabernacle of the testimony, that's a shorthand way of saying in the innermost room, the Ten Commandments are kept in the golden Ark of the Covenant. The people of Israel are going to set out in verse 12 by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. In the map here, I'm wanting you to notice that in the southern part of Sinai, where some of these projected routes and lines are, The people of Israel are going to move north, and we're told in verse 12, they set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran, P-A-R-A-N. The wilderness of Paran is above Sinai's uh, location there. You see that northeast, and the wilderness of Paran is where they are heading over a period of days. There's going to be some, some steps along the way, but verse 12 is just giving you a foreshadowing of where they are going to stop for some time. They're heading out from Sinai and going to the wilderness of Paran. That's the location. In verse 13, they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. Again, accompanied no doubt by trumpet blasts. Blast of trumpet, command of the Lord, the movement of the cloud. All of this is coming together to communicate now is the time to move. When the Israelites leave, they have a departure order that has already been specified. When we see the order of Israel's departure in verses 14 to 28 here, these names and the order that we're going to notice have already been given to us in Numbers chapter 2 and Numbers chapter 3. And who holds what and carries what or what goes in wagons and is taken by oxen, that's been given as well in Numbers 7. And Numbers uh, 10 verses 14 and following are going to give you then some, uh, some uh, information that you've not had here for the first time, but are going to pull together in a nice um, and concise way. Numbers 10, 14 begins this way. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was Nashan, the son of Amminadab. Each of these tribes is going to have a company leader or head that's going to be named. Judah has been named earlier in the book. So has Nashan, the company head. Judah is the first of the tribes to set out. And on the eastern side of the tabernacle, Judah was stationed in the encampment. We are then moving in marching order 
by breaking up the tribes, starting with Judah. Something else is happening if the eastern side is going to move, however, and I want us to think logically about who else is placed there. We need to remember that Moses and Aaron and the priests are stationed at the eastern side. They are in a unique position. The Levites were spread around the tabernacle as an inner ring between the encamping tribes and the tabernacle. But of the Levites, Moses, Aaron, and the priests have a unique placement. Here's what this means. When the marching order begins with Judah's tribe, Moses will also be in the front. Now, I know Moses is a Levite, but he's not just any Levite. And I know Aaron is a Levite, but he's not just any Levite. Levi had three sons. Kohath had Amram. Amram had Aaron, who has the priests, the sons. They are not just Levites, though. They're set apart as leaders and priests of Israel. Because they're on the eastern tribe, they will be in the front of the march. Um, More on that in just a moment. So Judah begins to set out. And then in verse 15, over the tribe, I'm sorry, over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Eliab, the son of Helon. Verses 14 to 16 give you the eastern tribes. Now, something is then going to follow the eastern tribes as they have set out. Verse 17 is going to include some of these descendants of Levi. Let's watch what happens. When the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. Levi's descendants, the Gershonites and the Merarites, they're on the right, uh, bottom right of the board, those descendants have specific roles to take down tabernacle artifacts. What I mean are Gershonites take coverings and ropes. The Merarites take frames and posts and tent pegs. There's even wagons and oxen that are going to be used when the Gershonites and the Merarites take it. So, eastern tribes set out. And now some framing and formal parts of the tabernacle are going to move as well. In verses 18 through 20, then the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies. They're on the southern side of the tabernacle. Over their company was Elizar the son of Shadur. In verse 19, over the company of the tribe of Simeon was Shalumiel the son of Zerushadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Eliasaph, the son of Duel. These names we've heard before. The names of these tribes are familiar to us all the way back from Genesis as descendants of Jacob, who was named Israel. These three Israelite tribes are on the southern side of the tabernacle. Verse 21 gives us another break between the tribes. Verse 21 says, then the Kohathites set out. What should we envision? Well, two entire sides of the tabernacle have left. The eastern side, the southern side, as well as between those, some temple framing, posts, ropes, curtains. What comes next before the third and fourth um, sections of the tabernacle encampments? The Kohathites in verse 21. Kohath is the, le- the other son of Levi that we want to pay attention to. Kohath is the ancestor of the actual priests. And yes, the priests have some distant family relation to the Gershonites, the Merarites, but they are descendants of Kohath. And as descendants, they are prepared by lineage to carry the holy things. 
It tells us in verse 21, they set out carrying the holy things and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. So such vast thousands and thousands of Israelites traveling. None of this is happening quickly. That means when these earlier encampments have arrived and the Gershonites and Merarites have all the tabernacle framing and curtains and ropes and bases and pegs, they can start setting things up. Because in the middle of the march come these Levitical descendants, the Kohathites, carrying holy things. What holy things are they carrying? Well, they have the lampstand. They have the bronze altar. They have the golden altar of incense that would be inside the tabernacle. They have the bronze basin of water. They have the golden table of showbread. And the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll talk about in a moment, is another of the holy things. Its placement is going to be different because of how unique it is. The other holy things I've just named, though, are carried. Not on wagons. Not by animals. But on poles, resting on the arms and shoulders of the Kohathites. These are holy by the symbolic carrying and transportation of the items. They're not thinking about the perimeter court pegs and trying to carry those in their arms together. Those go on wagons pulled by oxen. But the lampstand, the bronze altar that's used for sacrifice, poles go in these items and they are carried by the Kohathites. We come then to verses 22 to 24. We are on the western side of the tabernacle now. The standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies. Over their company was Elishama the son of Amahud. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidan, the son of Gideoni. In verses 25 through 27, we see the northern side and final side of the tribes. They take up the rear guard, if you will. Then the standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps set out by their companies. And over their company was Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. Over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, the son of Akron. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the order of march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. Across the tabernacle's various sides then, clockwise, starting on the eastern side. And then carefully, strategically placed between some of the camps, Levitical descendants carrying tabernacle parts, especially in the middle of the march, the holy things being transported. The, the sheer design, intricacy, and detail of who goes where and who carries what and who leaves when is guided by the trumpet blasts and cloud and earlier commands of Israel. It is a heavy and holy thing. It is grand and epic. And we should sense the epic nature of this because they've been at Sinai since Exodus 19. And now it's telling us here is the order of the march that they are in real time and space setting out upon. A conversation arises in verses 29 through 32. A conversation we need to know about between Moses and his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law named Hobab. Now, Hobab is one of these names that appears so quickly in the storyline of the people of Israel that it's easy to blink and go right past it. But there is a, a little small window of verses here 
an interaction between Moses and his brother-in-law Hobab. We're told in verse 29 that Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give to you. Come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. Take this as an invitation by an Israelite to a non-Israelite. Hobab is in the land of Midian. Hobab's father is Ruel, also known as Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. It's been a bit since we've heard of those names, Ruel or Jethro. Back in Exodus chapter 2, Moses left Egypt at age 40. He had a wanted poster with his face on it, and the administration wanted him dead. And in the next 40 years of his life, from age 40 to age 80, he lived in Midian. And he married. And he has a father-in-law. And in the region of Midian, not far is the land, the wilderness of Sinai. This mountain called Sinai or Horeb, where a burning bush attracted the attention of Moses in Exodus 3, and he heard from the Lord. Well, here, these years later, they've been at this same mountain, Mount Horeb or Sinai, but as a nation... And it's not just been a bush that's been aflame, but pillar of cloud and glory and fire, first on the mountain itself, and now on the tabernacle. And as they're departing, Moses says to his brother-in-law, you should come with us. Pack a bag, Hobab. Take what you can. We're setting out for the place. What place? Well, the promised land. They're heading to the promised land. Moses knows this. And he says, God has said of that land, I will give it to you. This isn't even going to be a question of whether they will end up inheriting the land or not. God has said, I will give it to you. So Hobab, come with us. Come to this land. Come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. Now, certainly in the land of Midian, there would have been worship of other gods not knowing all the religious details of the Midianite household that Hobab was part of, Moses has married into that, and it is possible that there is a favorability spiritually toward Yahweh in the household of Hobab. But Moses doesn't want Hobab to stay in the Sinai wilderness. Come with us, Hobab. The language that Moses uses, we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. Where would he get these ideas? What we know from the the language of God to Abraham, it probably is in the background here. God said to Abraham, I'm going to go, come with me, I'm going to show you a land. And uh, these, the people that will descend from you, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. The Lord has promised to do good. And if they will side with the people of Israel, in fact, if... If Hobab, if Hobab will cast his life into the mix of the people of God there, he will experience the covenant life and blessing and fellowship with Yahweh. So Moses is saying to this non-Israelite, come with us. We will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. Later on in the book of Judges, some translations call Hobab in Judges 4.11 the father-in-law of Moses. 
which has often made readers scratch their heads and say, father-in-law or brother-in-law, how could he be both? Well, brother-in-law is probably the right translation. The language in Judges 4.11, if you happen to come across it and you think, well, back in September 18th when we had this discussion of Hobab being the brother-in-law, if if my translation says father-in-law, what do I think about that? These are attempts of translators to render a Hebrew word that probably means more broadly a relation with someone and isn't limited to father-in-law. I think it is still right to think of Jethro slash Ruel as the same figure who has a son, Hobab, the brother-in-law of Moses. So I don't think Judges 4.11 will change that at all. Just a side issue there, close parenthesis. In verse 30, what does Hobab respond? I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. I wonder if this surprises you at all. Here he's no doubt been along these months with the people of Israel, at least in this region most recently. And he says, I'm not going to go. Thanks, but no thanks. And I don't think this was a disrespectful rebuff necessarily in verse 30, but a clear statement that I will go where my family is. My own land, my own kindred. That's his desire. Verses 31 and 32 are Moses' words. Don't take the following quotations to be from Hobab. Moses says, please do not leave us. You think, well, Moses isn't taking no for an answer, is he? He really wants Hobab to go. That's exactly right. Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness. And you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. Again, Hobab is pressing the goodness of the Lord, the covenant promise of God that undergirds such confidence. And he says, Hobab, this is for you. Come with us. Now, in verse 31, Moses' reasoning, at least some of it, I don't think we could say he only saw a practical use for Hobab, but he's at least trying to say, Hobab, we also have need of you. There's a, a real relevance that your experience and background can have to serve the people. What's the background here? In verse 31, you know where we should camp in the wilderness. Now, why would Moses know that about Hobab? What's Hobab's background? Well, again, a Midianite context where near the Sinai wilderness, here's a man who knows all the trails in the woods. Here's a guy who knows where the drop-offs are and the streams are and this and that. In other words, there's a familiarity in this region that Hobab has. Well, that would be quite useful, thank you very much, for, have, for him to come with us. Because if we're going to be traveling in an area that he has at least some degree of familiarity with, what a blessing that would be. He says, please don't leave us in verse 31. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness. And you will serve as eyes for us. In verse 32, if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. Now, I've said to you already that in Genesis 12, the background of God's words to Abraham seem to be in view. God says to Abraham, come with me to this land and I'm going to bless you. And Moses is saying to Hobab, come with us to this land. God is going to bless you. The reason Moses says that is because he believes the words of God, believes the promises of God. He bears the covenantal words of God. I also think to myself, well, it's interesting when you read later the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi 
is um, in a situation in the promised land in her family where they have a famine in the land of Israel. They leave and they go to the land of Moab. And after some time, after her husband dies and her sons die, her daughters-in-law and Naomi have a very frank conversation about what should be done next. And Naomi is going to go into the promised land and she doesn't want them to go with her. And Ruth says, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. You have almost a reverse in that circumstance where Naomi is discouraging her from an accompanying, accompanying trip to the promised land. And here earlier, Moses is saying to Hobab, you should not stay here. Naomi says to Ruth, you should go to your household and your kindred. And Hobab says, I think I'll do that. Moses says, don't do that. Not with what God has promised. Think about the grander scheme of things. Think about the blessing of God and the covenant goodness of God, the steadfast love of Yahweh. Moses is wanting to press on these things. A reader will notice after verse 32, you don't have Hobab's second reaction. And a lot of people have said, well, you know, the first time he reacted to the words of Moses, he said, thanks, but no thanks. So what did he do this time? Well, it turns out that Hobab's people are featured later as descendants in the book of Judges, in Judges 1 and in Judges 4, which says to us, by implication, Hobab went. Hobab went. We draw that implication from later texts. You don't see that explicitly in Numbers 10.32. The thing I want you to notice in the passages closing, in verses 33 to 36... Is after Moses has had this brief conversation with a Gentile, a non-Israelite, calling him to join with them, Hobab is going to join the march. And in verses 33 to 36, the text ends by highlighting, by emphasis of placement here, the Ark of the Covenant. Now in the Ark of the Covenant, you have this structure, a wooden box overlaid with gold, that would go in the innermost section of this sanctuary, the tabernacle, in the innermost room called the Most Holy Place, and it would be going on that journey to Paran and then eventually into the Promised Land. Now, this Ark of the Covenant is of such significance that though it is a holy thing, it will not be just anywhere in the march among the other holy things. It tells us in verse 33, So they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them. Think about that imagery. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. Whenever the Ark is inside the tabernacle, we would think of this as the Ark in its resting place. We'll just use that language. The Ark is at rest. And the Ark... On the move, at the front of the march of the people, the ark has risen, if you will, on the shoulders and poles of those carrying it. Now, I told you earlier that on the eastern entrance, the first section of the tabernacle that would depart, you've got the tribe of Judah. You have a couple others, but also stationed on the eastern side, Moses, Aaron, and his sons, the priests. They will be the ones to bear the ark. 
they are going out to lead the people because of the location of their camp. They're on the eastern side, which means as the ark travels, Moses leads the people with the ark. I'm not saying it's Moses' shoulders. I'm saying the ark is going and Moses is going at the front as well. The Ark of the Covenant goes three days journey, guiding the people across those days to seek out a resting place. I think that's language to say the Lord is going to lead them to the appropriate spot for them to set up camp. Searching or seeking out a resting place means that. The Ark, in other words, had been in the tabernacle in the center of the camp. But now in the march, it leads the front of the entire nation. Why is the significance of that important? Because the ark symbolizes the holy presence and glory of Yahweh. We're not cloaking that and concealing that somewhere amidst all the hundreds of thousands of Israelites. The ark of God leads the people. If we imagine then blasts of trumpets to guide them in the various orders. If we imagine the fire and cloud above that leads the people having lifted over the tabernacle and moves. And now the ark of God borne up by the proper priests to be carried to that place. This is a picture of saying in the camp God is the center of their life. And as they move they follow the Lord. There are people who follow the Lord. So their life is characterized by a God-centered reality. And part of the way their life looks on foot is that they follow where the Lord leads. That's what it means for them to be a worshiping people. God is the center of their life and the leader of their steps. All the way my Savior leads me. Amen. In verse 34, And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, whenever they set out from the camp. This is not new information, just added here. Reiterating information, actually, right? We know the cloud of the Lord is over them during the day when they set out. Verses 35 and 36, we could call a small two-line hymn. Some people have called this the song of the ark. What is this language? In verses 35 and 36, this is language associated with the ark of the covenant. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord. All right, well, earlier I told you that if this ark is located in the tabernacle, it's as if it's in its resting place. But when the ark is to be removed to lead the people on the march, the call from Moses is, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Now that language is assuming a guidance of the Lord with such authority and power that if the enemies knew the righteous and holy God who is leading the people of Israel to inheritance. They would not challenge him. They would not try to rise to be a rival against him. They would bow before him. They would forsake their idols and they would worship the living God. The enemies of God, however, should fear him. They should scatter before his holy presence. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered is a way of saying pave the way for the Lord who leads his people to their inheritance. It also tells us not only does Moses believe the words from God to Abraham that those who bless you will be blessed. He also believes that those who curse you will be cursed. Let those who hate you flee before you. If they are the enemies of God and they are opposed to the Lord, then that is a bad posture spiritually for them to have because of the judgment of the Lord. They should fear divine judgment. 
Not just the conquest of a group of human beings who look at a land and think that's what we want. They are led by the Lord's ark, his fire and cloud. There's nothing normal about that state of affairs with the brilliance and strategy unfolding in numbers. This is a prayer for conquest. Arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. In verse 36, and when it rested, the last verse is still about the ark, not with it being removed from the tabernacle to lead, but now when they arrive at the camp and the tabernacle has already been set up by the Gershonites, the Merarites, it says, when it rested, Moses said, return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. I know that the words thousands or myriads can sometimes refer to angelic host in the Bible. And context has to determine whether something heavenly or something earthly is meant. But it talks here about the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And that certainly envisions the vast scope of the nation. God said to Abraham that there will be lines and offsprings from you. Uh, you will have children. And the Israelites traveling from Sinai to Paran for now. They are evidence in their many thousands and myriads of people that they are Israelites descended from, from Abraham in fulfillment of covenant promises. When, God, when Moses says, return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel, that is a lyrical way of restoring the Lord's ark into the tabernacle. The Lord rises out so that they can be led by those bearing up the ark on poles, and then the ark returns behind the veil, return, O Lord, to your people. That's the idea. Return to the center of the camp with your glory, your authority, your power. For the Lord to return to his people means that. Later on in the book of Psalms, I want you to hear a couple examples from a Davidic psalm, and then one not from David. In Psalm 68 David says, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered and those who hate him shall flee before him. That's Psalm 68.1. Well, I wonder where that came from. Psalm 68.1 is lifting language from the Torah, from the Pentateuch. David knows the law of God. And David's knowledge and devotion to the law of God has shaped even the way he prays. We're not surprised at all that Psalms of David would be laden with imagery and language from the first five books of Moses. And here, Psalm 68, 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, those who hate him shall flee before him. That's from Numbers 10. It's that small two-line hymn about the ark. Then later in Psalm 132, verse 8, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Psalm 132 says this. So a non-Davidic psalmist writes this way, because again, this is a psalmist who knows the word of God. And the language of the books of Moses have shaped and influenced the very way they pray, Arise, O Lord. The resting place, we find out, of course, through the storyline of the Old Testament and into the New, was not a resting place that was final and consummate. We learn in the book of Hebrews, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 13, that they as a people of God were not given rest even under Joshua. And the writer tells you in Hebrews 4, verses 8 to 13, if Joshua had given them rest, then it wouldn't have been promised as another day of rest to come later on. The Hebrews writer is wanting to show you the Old Testament significance of that place, the promised land, as a type and a shadow the new heavens and new earth, a new Jerusalem, 
A city not built by human hands, but the city of God on high. We see in the book of Revelation 21 and 22 the consummation of what the shadows of the promised land anticipated. While the ark was leading the people of God to a resting place, the Lord Jesus Christ is leading his people into a new creation. That is what we have before us. That's what language in Numbers 10 is paving the way for. We don't follow a wooden box overlaid with gold. The Lord Jesus leads his people as a shepherd leads the flock. Where are we going? We're going to the celestial city. He leads us to an everlasting life with him in a new creation. Revelation in 21 and 22 tell us this. We will be a people fully and finally at rest with the Lord Jesus at the consummation of all things. Even in uh, this chapter, we also have noted the inclusion of the Gentiles. Hobab further foreshadows what we've seen several instances of already in the books of Moses. And that is the heart of God on a global scale. That not just Israelites, but non-Israelites would join in the knowledge and worship and pursued and covenant life of God. And we here as Gentiles recognize that Hobab uh, is that sort of example to look to the God of Israel and say, He is my God. And the God of the Exodus is my deliverer. And the God who made those promises and covenants, He is my redeemer. We look at the stories of Genesis through Numbers so far in the Torah and we see this is our people's history because we are included as the people of faith and Abraham is our father. Paul has written so um, eloquently about this, hasn't he? In the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians and in the book of Ephesians. Trying to explain and hold out for us the joyful news that we are as Jewish believers and Gentile believers in Christ Jesus, one body. Gentile inclusion here shown in the life of Hobab. Yeah, so Hobab doesn't get a lot of traction in the biblical storyline. The New Testament never talks about a guy named Hobab. But here you have it just tucked away in Numbers 10. But he really matters. Hobab really matters because the goodness and covenant words of God were extended to him. And Hobab went. And in his mind, he thought he had good reasons not to. But he went nevertheless because what was promised was greater than what he was leaving behind. That's, that's walking with eyes of faith. And that's what Moses wanted him to see. Hobab could see his kindred and his family. And Moses says, I want you to see more than just that. And seeing with the eyes of faith would compel Hobab's steps to join the march. And then we see the victory of the Lord Jesus. The one who is greater than the Ark of the Covenant who leads his people. In the New Testament, our Lord and Savior, greater than pillar of fire and cloud. The one who is the fulfillment of all of these earthly shadows and types. In fact, I've even wondered if on that first Easter morning, the angels of heaven said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let's pray.